Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Palmer bet on the edge of the box. Oh, it's a straight up screamer. Download our app today and enjoy straight up screamers this FIFA World Cup with great odds, great promos and same game multi at Palmerbet. Gamble responsibly. For gambler's help, call 1-800-858-858. Welcome to Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Hello, my name is Tim McBellard. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories brought to you by Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. If you're wondering why a whole bunch of landmarks around Perth uh, on Friday just gone were all lit up blue, Matagarrup Bridge, Council House, the Bell Tower to name just a few, uh, then there is a very good reason. It was World Autism Awareness Day. Uh, But for many, uh, it's not all about that one day, as important as that is. The work goes on 365 days a year. Uh, My guest in this episode uh, is one of those people that has dedicated uh, all 365 days a year for many, many years, uh, dedicating her professional life uh, to those with autism. Uh, She's currently the CEO of the Autism Association of WA. She's sat on numerous uh, advisory boards related to autism, and in 2017 was awarded the prestigious Asia-Pacific Autism Award for a lifetime of service to people with autism and their family. So it's with great pleasure I say hello and welcome to Joan McKenna Kerr. Hello, Joan. How are you? It's a great pleasure to be here, Tim. Um, World Autism Awareness Day mm-hmm. ha- has just been. Um, what was the theme of it? What are you trying to achieve, you know, being part of a, a marked day on the calendar like that? I think the most important thing is to really give recognition to the achievements of people with autism facing many barriers to being able to do things. Um, And really the focus of Autism Week is focusing on the strengths of people with autism and how they are contributing to to be an important part of our community, whether it's the young child going to school for the first time to someone who's entering the workforce. People with autism are part of the great tapestry of diversity and that's what we want to emphasize on autism day and in autism month how do you think we're going in, in achieving that you've been in in this industry if you can call it that uh, within this community if you like uh, for for several years now how do you think we're going in achieving that oh look compared to 20 years ago we are doing so much better and i think we're doing so much better because young people are changing young people are more open to diversity they're more open to difference uh, the more accepting, the more inclusive. Um, I'm very heartened by where we're where, where we're going. Now, do we need to uh, go further? Are there things that we actually need to do? Are there improvements that we need to make in education? Is there awareness needed of the great contribution that people with autism can make to the workforce? Absolutely, yes. But I think the thing that gives me confidence is what I see in young people, people uh, of teenager years, people in their 20s. They're different from 20 years ago. It's a society that is about, you know, okay, you're different. I'm cool with that. Yeah. Yeah. And and what is that? Is it just getting the awareness out there and then letting that new generation grow up with that awareness and accept it as being just part of the neurodiversity in the community? 
I think it's part of diversity at large, cultural diversity. Um, basically, people of all hues and colours, people of all creeds, people of all sexual orientations, people are different. That's what makes mm. the community strong. And it's also that idea that public space belongs to everyone. And people uh, with disability, people with autism should be part of that public space. We hear a lot of buzzwords like neurodiversity on mm. days like mm. this. Mm. Um for those who perhaps don't implicitly understand what these things mean, can you just, I mean, what does neurodiversity mean to someone who's not been intimately involved with it, so perhaps doesn't appreciate it? What does social inclusion actually mean? Look, if I can actually sum up with this story, um, I know this young man with autism. Uh, he's 30 years of age, and he loves going to this particular pub, student pub, every week on a Tuesday. And uh, recently, um, it was uh, it, it was booked out by a particular group who are having it booked out for their event. And the barman saw him coming and kn knew that on Tuesdays, this young man comes to this particular pub. And he went up and he asked the organizers of that event, I know it's your event, but this chap with autism comes on Tuesdays. Can he come in? Mm -hmm. And they said yes. So neurodiversity, look, broadly at a theoretical level, is different ways of that people have of understanding the world and being in the world. And the issue of inclusion is really about how we accept people who are different from us, who have different perspectives, but also see the world in a different way. And I may need different kinds of support to be part of the community that we're in. Mm. And you think we're getting better at celebrating all of those different abilities and different perspectives. But that's what we're working at. And mm. I, I guess your program this morning is is largely, uh, you know, about that. And we see it through some of the uh, programs that have been, you know, some of the shows here at Crown where we've had, you know, the, the, the Disney version for um, people with autism taking account of their sensory difficulties. We have, uh, I think, one day a week, or not, I'm not sure if it's one day a week or one day a month in the... Uh, in the uh, uh, museum in, in Perth, we have a, a quiet day where people who have different needs, different needs for quietness, um, can go there on that day. So, yes, the community is getting used to the fact that not everyone comes from the same cookie cutter. Mm. And we need to respond in different ways to support, um, um, you know, different people. But, you know, it's really interesting that we think about the things that we have to do to include people who are different. But when you think about what you and I do every day in our relationships, you know, in our, in our ordinary everyday relationships, we adjust to other people. We make allowances for other people. We do all sorts of things naturally. Um, but often when it comes to people with disability, people who are visibly different from us, we actually have to think about it and make that extra effort. So mm. really about inclusion and neurodiversity is saying there's a place for everyone under the sun and it's it's responsibility of everyone to make that place a comfortable place for everyone under the sun. The the definition, if you like, uh, of autism seems to be evolving too. When you get people come to you mm. and, and ask you very basic questions, you know, what is autism these days? How, how do you answer that? To someone who doesn't, hasn't had any exposure to it. Yeah. Look, um, you know, people with autism fundamentally have a lot of difficulty in reading other people. So they have a mind blindness, if you like, to how to read other people. 
So going back to what I was saying earlier, we adjust ourselves all the time to the expectations of others, right? I'm not getting up and dancing on the table at the moment because, you know, I'm not at a party. And <laughs> feel free, Jane. <laughs> that's what, the, the thing that's is, what you feel like doing. I am adjusting to the expectations of this situation because I can read the expectations of the situation. People with autism have great difficulty reading other people and it gets them into a lot of trouble. And a lovely example a couple of years ago was a, a teacher in a school had um, just had a bereavement. Her mother had died. And the young chap, the 10-year-old chap, went up to the teacher and started telling her jokes. And somebody said, oh, my goodness, isn't that such an insensitive thing to do? How dreadful. And from his point of view, he was trying to make her happy. Yeah. So not being able to read context, and it gets people into all sorts of trouble all of the time. Mm. Um, also, they're very literal understanding of language. And, uh, you know, this young woman who works uh, at the association, I, I, I was paying her a compliment one day and I said, oh, you have a beautiful, where, where did you find that cardigan? It's beautiful. And she said, I didn't find it. I bought it. Mm-hmm. So there is, so, you know, every day of, uh, every day of the week, they're trying to read us and understand us. And the people who do best with people with autism are the people who become predictable to them. So fundamentally, it's about a difficulty in reading other people, which we all do automatically. Mm. Then there's the other thing of of language. And, you know, some people with autism don't ever develop verbal language at at all. And some people have very limited understanding of what's spoken to them. And then you have those individuals who do develop a a language, but it's very literal in their understanding. And people can... For example, with some of the examples I gave you, people can think they're being bloody minded, you know, or, or they, you know, whatever the, the description is, when actually they're just being autistic. Mm. So because they can appear so different in the way they um, understand their environment and how difficult they, the difficulties they have in reading you, it gets them into all sorts of trouble and it creates barriers. Mm. So the teacher can think they're, you know, just again being naughty. Uh, a co-worker, if they ha- ha- if they get to work and think, gee, he's weird, she's weird. But when we actually understand autism, we actually get to, to, to see um, how what a great job they do in overcoming the difficulties. They all are. Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, just on the story about the the teacher who who'd lost someone too, it sort of it, it highlights, I think, one of the many misconceptions certainly one that I you know and, and full disclosure my son is autistic mm-hmm. and, and one of the things that people often mistake about kids with autism is that they have no empathy oh that's so a- and yet the the story that you've just told there displays the exact opposite they didn't express it in a way that is considered and I'm using air quotes here but you know normal or mm-hmm. socially acceptable but it's wrong to say that they don't have empathy it in fact some, totally. sometimes they're almost hyper empathetic aren't they totally and you know, the thing that really strikes me, um, the people who lack empathy are the people who are, quote unquote, the um, normal individuals without people without autism because they mm. don't have empathy with the difficulties of, of, of that particular person. Yeah. So absolutely. Yeah. Joe, we need to take a break. After that, I want to know more about you okay. and why you got involved okay. so heavily. Uh, in autism uh, okay. many years ago. This is Inspiring Stories. Joan McKenna-Kerr is our special guest. Back with more in a moment. 
You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. My special guest in this episode is the CEO of the Autism Association of WA, Joan McKenna Kerr. Uh, Joan, I'm picking up an accent uh, mm-hmm. with you from mm-hmm. uh, from way over uh, in in Great Britain. <laughs> Can you tell me about about you? Yes. Um, and and your early days. Yeah, it was a long while ago. Um, look, um, I'm from Ireland. I'm from Dublin. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm uh, a graduate of Trinity College Dublin. Um, a sociologist by profession. Okay. And um, I came to, I was working up in Sumatra uh, in Banda Aceh uh, on development work. And uh, I wanted to go somewhere for Christmas that was a bit different. And I came on a visit to Perth. And I thought it was the most fabulous place I'd been. And I'd done a bit of traveling. Mm. I always remember it was the week before Christmas. And I was traveling up the northern suburbs and um, the highway, and I thought I could see in a distance, you know, the, you know the, when the haze kind of uh, jumps off the road, mm-hmm. and I could see, and I could see, and it was 40 degrees, and I could see this little red figure in, in the distance, and I, I came up, and, and there was a fully clad Santa Claus <laughs> in, <laughs> in 40 degrees. And the thing, I guess, that Australians don't appreciate too much is actually how friendly Australia is, you know. I could not believe, you know, I went in, I went into other pizzas, and everyone would say, good day, how you doing? And I thought this is the most remarkable place. So I went back to work in Sumatra, and I said, I want to live there. And what was interesting at that time, even though I know my geography, I hadn't made the distinction between um, Western Australia and the rest of Australia. So um, when I came back to Australia, I went to Queensland. And I very soon discovered, and Queensland is lovely, but I very soon discovered it wasn't Western Australia. Mm. (laughs) And Western Australia is where I wanted to be, so I came to Western Australia. And I've been here ever since. What were you doing in Sumatra? You say Mm. you're a sociologist by background. What, What were you actually doing there? Look, um, there was uh, agreement between a British multinational and the Indonesian government to set up some industries in Sumatra. And um, the infrastructure for healthcare services um, needed to be set up, um, as well as um, uh, provisions for uh, worker welfare. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was mainly, in, in the beginning, the setting up of the infrastructure um Kitting out, um, kitting out the clinics that were needed, recruiting the professionals that would be needed. So yeah, yeah, that's the work that was done. Loved it. And from that short taste of of Perth, all those years ago, mm. um, did it live up to your expectations when you made the permanent move? Can I tell you, I've had a love affair with Western Australia ever since. I mean, I'm I'm West Australian, yeah. and um, it's just. I mean, the thing that I get into trouble with, I often I just find that the eastern states don't understand as well enough. No. Um, and it, it it it's absolutely true. You know, I'm on a lot of national bodies. They never they never you know, they don't make allowances for the time difference. And you know, I often feel and all this is, I'm I'm just you know 
betraying my prejudices now, but I, I'm, so I'm allowed to. But I often think, go for it. <laughs> I often think, you know, hold on, you know, we're not just a quarry with an attitude. Um, we we made such a, an important contribution um, in so many ways, but in the field of disability. So in the field of disability, um, Western Australia has had a leading edge. I mean, in innovation in the way uh, Western Australia thinks about um, putting families in the driving seat, um, about individualised funding, individualised service. I mean, I know NDIS, you know, talked about choice and control, um, but Western Australia was talking about choice and giving people choice long before NDIS. Now, before everyone says it wasn't perfect, I know it wasn't perfect. But I know that Western Australia was way ahead of the pack in terms of um, disability and in terms of thinking about mm. disability. Hence our reluctance uh, at one point to even join up to it. That's true. But that's a whole other story it for is. another day, perhaps. Um, from from being a sociologist then in, in Sumatra, mm. um, how did you become part of the, the disability community as such in Australia? What, what lured you over to, to this world? Well, um, I was... You know, I, I was here, yeah, and um, I was looking at um, completing my um, a thesis on the sociology of the nation state. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds very foreign now, but um, <laughs> look, a couple of things happened, and a couple of pathways opened up. Um, one, uh, Professor Richard Josky, um, God rest his soul, he he died a couple of years back. Um, he had a son with autism, and there was this little parent group, Autism Association of Western Australia at that time. That was struggling for sustainability, no government funding, um, nothing. And he thought he could use my skills um, basically to put some structure around um, um, this tiny organisation that was in two rooms over a fish and chip shop in um, Osborne Park. Um, at the same time, um, my son was diagnosed with autism. Mm -hmm. And there are a number of really strong memories that made me think, we have to change things. I remember going, there, there was very little in the way of specific services for uh, children with autism. And it, it, that's really hard for families now to understand because there's so many services. A diagnosis of autism often meant you couldn't get services because you were the not nice people with disabilities. Mm -hmm. And so often difficult, um, you know, uh, the perception of people with autism as not having empathy, the perception of people with not, be, not being social when they're just social in different ways. So there was very, very, very little. There, there were so many stories at that time of families not being able to get respite in generic disability organizations. Um, anyway, I went out to see what was, I think, the only dedicated service at that time. It was a tiny, tiny, tiny uh, state-run um, service for uh, children with autism. Children with autism were often uh, taken out of special schools were having a lot of challenging behavior or whatever. I will never forget going down the hallway. So it, it was in a building up behind a mental health facility in Victoria Park. And um, I remember going into the building and there were very good people in there. They were dedicated people. But I remember going down the corridor and there were all sorts of graphs on the wall. And it was the graphs of the children's progress or lack of it. 
and I could hear screeches coming from different parts of the building. And my first thought was, I, win- I wonder which voice belongs to which graph, mm. you know? And it really was such an overwhelming feeling. I had discussions with the people in there, and obviously I was looking for services myself at the time. And what really struck me as the was the lack of, and not through any, not through any bad intent, but it was almost the lack of ambition mm. for people with autism. You know, they were sectioned off, weren't they? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like, and I came out of that. I came out of the building. And I remember walking down from where it was. And I remember feeling my, I, I could, I was very conscious of my breathing. I was very conscious of the cold on my face. And I, I was in a state of terror, to be quite honest. Absolute state of terror. And my first feeling is, this can't be the only thing that's available for my baby. This can't be, this can't be the future for my baby. Mm-hmm. And I got into my car and I said, I'm going to change that. I'm going to change that. I'm going to work to change that. And so I took the job at the Autism Association, and there was, you know, no salary, anything else um, at the time. And I started out on the road to get funding. I had no funding. It had nothing. And I would just turn up on people's doors. And the thing that I often say, the big learning curve for me was... um, I thought the only thing you needed to be was right. (laughs) (laughs) And I soon learned that it was more than being right. It was about convincing people. It was about taking people on the journey with you. Um, It was about doing all sorts of things. The one lucky break I got along that way, you know, because the the Autism Association, I mean, we have a thousand staff now, Mm. right? Across multiple properties. I see fleets of cars around on the roads. Absolutely. We had nothing, and uh, it was in bad shape financially. So um, I went to, uh, the, it was the Minister of Health at that time, Keith Wilson. And, you know, I was a young woman, lots of vim and vigor, and um, I just wanted everything. I wanted to have the elephant now, not have to, not, not have to bite it one chunk at a time. And he was, you know, we, we, we had contentious meetings, but I must say, I, 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 we, Keith became a man that I admired greatly and still do mm. for all his work that he's done. And he gave us uh, funding for one year, and it was sink or swim, and we yeah. swam. Well, it, was, it, was only, it was a small amount of funding, but it was enough, enough to, to basically it launch it, yeah. and we did. And I, I served on a whole range of things with Keith since, since that time. And he, I mean, I don't know if he knows. I, I've told him once that how instrumental he was. In, and sometimes people don't understand the significance of um, some of the things that they do. And I really important to acknowledge him this morning. Yeah. And it's a common story throughout the disability community generally, mm-hmm. isn't it? That the people who often do lead change are, pers- are people who are personally invested and I suppose you're a perfect example of that. But do you know all the you know whether you're looking at cerebral palsy active foundation others mm. they were all founded by parents and I always say that it takes two things to change anything for disadvantaged or marginalized people it takes intellect and passion. 
if you only have the intellect, it'll weave itself into a bureaucracy. If you've only got the passion, it'll ricochet off the wall. Mm. But when you combine intellect and passion and also that determination that especially a parent feels for a child, it will move mountains. And the thing that you hear so much in all areas of disability just not in autism, but it, it, it's the driving grief for families. And it's that driving grief of who will love my child when I'm no longer there? Who will take care of my child when I'm no longer there? Who will understand my child? Who will advocate for my child? And so um, Western Australia is replete with great parent leaders who've actually changed the landscape, in fact, created the landscape that we know in Western Australia. Yeah. We need to take another break, yeah. Joan. After that, we'll hear some of the um, the great projects and initiatives mm. that you've been a part of mm. over the years. This is Inspiring Stories. Joan McKenna Kerr is our special guest. Back with more in a moment. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. The CEO of the Autism Association, Joan McKenneker, is our special guest. Uh, Joan, there's probably not enough time, frankly, to go mm. through all of the, the stuff that you've been mm. doing. You gave us a, a picture, mm. if you like, of the very early mm. days of the Autism Association and your involvement with them. Um, but let's fast forward uh, to more recent years. Mm. Um, projects in East Java. Mm. How did that all come about? What have you been doing there? Well, as you know, we provide a range of services here in Western Australia, um, from early intervention right through to adult support, including we've got one of the um, only specialist employment agencies for people with autism in Australia, and one of about five specialist autism agencies for employment in the world. So we provided a whole range of services. And uh, we'd had uh, a number of people come to visit us here in Western Australia to see our services. So we were invited to the uh, signing of the sister state agreement between Western Australia and East Java. And during that meeting, um, the representatives from the West Australian government asked East Java uh, what particular areas would they like assistance in. And one of them was that the Autism Association of Western Australia come and assist them to uh, set up um, autism uh, services throughout uh, East Java. And um, we did. Um, what we did, we got funding from the West Australian government and there was also resources put into it by the Indonesian government. And we've assisted them to set up um, five resource centres for people with autism and their families. And the thing that was quite remarkable when we were looking at doing the, uh, when, when we were looking at we, what needed to be done, we would, we visited a whole range of schools um, for kids with autism, or centres, they weren't really schools. And we could see the mums and the grandmothers sitting outside. And one of the things that you really notice is that when you look at autism and disability and you look at the impact on the family, uh, East Java might have been a very different culture, um, might have been very different circumstances. But I knew that looking at the mums and grandmothers here in Western Australia and the mums and grandmothers sitting there wondering about their child in East Java, there was a great common bond, mm -hmm. an absolutely great common bond. So it was, it, it, you know, we've been there from, 
for the last nine years, really. And we've helped to set up centers. Obviously, we haven't been able to go back with COVID, but we'd go back twice a year, do master classes, look at training. And they're doing great work. Uh, the people that we trained now are training um, throughout Indonesia. Um, and it's great to be able to share knowledge. It's great to be able to advance uh, a, a group of people that have many barriers to mm. advancement. And so that has been great. But it also was great for, for me to bring back st staff to East Java because it reminds you of what you have to do with nothing. You know what I mean? When we, when we started up, we didn't have fancy computers. We didn't have iPads. We didn't have anything. But we knew how to work with people with autism. We knew, knew how to set up the important things like structure, like routine, to help people understand through communicating with visual supports. And all of those things can be done with a pen and pencil. Right? Mm. Um, so it took people back from being very posh to actually the basics. You know, And it, it's really good for young staff and young clinicians to get to see, look, you don't need all this stuff. You know, you develop a relationship with the person. You develop a trust with the person. You learn to have empathy with the person. And then you know, you get to know what the difficulties are for the person. And your job as a, as, as a clinician or a staff member, your job is to build bridges. You're a bridge builder, right? You're not a service provider. You're a, builder, you're a bridge builder. And you need to, to build a bridge between that autism culture and, you know, the neurotypical culture. Mm. And you help navigate the neurotypical in terms of um, understanding autism and you help the person with autism to be able to navigate the neurotypical world. Mm. So it wasn't just doing something for East Java. It was also, you know, really good to get people back to looking at what you, you don't need all of the bump mm. you can do. And, you know, sometimes families that were working, they don't have all of the bump and um, and it's looking at some of the really simple things that you can actually do that make a big difference. And that's why I think East Java was really important to us. Yeah. And it was, I mean, we also took it as a great compliment that out of all the things they could have asked for, they asked um, for the Awesome Association yeah. um, to do that work with them. As you uh, represent, not just in East Java, but on the, the world stage generally, we mm -hmm. just have had a World Autism Awareness Day globally. Um, what are the sort of common themes and practices, if you like, that that, that are uh, standard around the world. Um, you know, spending time establishing routines and structures. Mm -hmm. Every country does mm -hmm. certain things mm -hmm. well mm -hmm. or, or, you know, less well than, than others. And there are mm -hmm. different, you know, therapy, therapy mm -hmm. techniques that mm -hmm. some mm -hmm. countries favour above others. What are the things, though, that, that unite you around the world? Look, anybody who works successfully with a person with autism knows that you need structure, you need routine. Patience. You need patience. <laughs> and you need to be able to assist the person to anticipate change. And you also need to understand that what we call there is a function to behavior, right? So that when someone does something that may be challenging to us is because they've experienced something that's challenging to them. And basically all behavior has an underlying cause and sometimes it's it's to do with the fact that we haven't put the right framework in or the right structure so that the person can access the world that we're in. Mm. I think everyone understands, for example, if you've got a mobility disability, you need you, you may need ramps. Everyone understands that if you've got a vision impairment, there are other things you need to do to assist you to be able to access information. 
But often with autism, because the disability is hidden, um, people forget to put in the, if you like, the ramps, right? Put in the access. They don't think of access. And so when you're not thinking of access, when you're not thinking of accessibility, when you're not thinking about what does that person need to be able to support them to do, to, to, to just be uh, in, to participate in everyday life, when you're not thinking about that, that's when they can get really, really frazzled. Mm. So I think those are the things that people understand. They understand that people with autism, and this is changed from 30 years ago. So 30 years ago, family said to me, you know, uh, when I take my son for therapy, it's like he's going to an exorcism, right? And it's like, you know, you need to ban the demon autism, right? Um, and we've changed. It was, and I, I remember families phoning up and saying, um, who are you? What do you do? Do you allow him to practice his autism? <laughs> As though it was a lifestyle choice. And, and I, I think the issue is that we now understand fundamentally what that autism is a disability that impairs people in particular ways, just like mobility, just like vision. And we have to do things to make sure that the person is supported mm. to be able to operate in the world that we live in. Yeah. And that's the thing that in and that's the thing deficits. that in good services um around the world we'll all do. That's the yep. thing. Despite all of the, you know, the the different products that, you know, families are often bombarded with, good services understand that. Just before we, we go to another break, um what do you say to people who say that this is a condition now that is overdiagnosed? I mean, you know, they look at the raw stats and go, you know, 30 years ago it was one in however many hundred or thousand and now it's, you know, in some parts of the US it might be one in 70. Um, what do you say to people who think, oh, this is a, another label that's being overapplied to people? How do, you, how do you respond to that? Look, one of the things that I think has happened in, in, in recent years, um, and I think it especially happens when people don't want to fund support to people with disabilities. 30 years ago, when you, um, when, when you, when you went to receive support from a government entity and they were classifying you, they only had a number of classifications. And that classification was intellectual disability, a mobility impairment, vision, uh, a sensory impairment or neurological Autism was absent. So one of the really interesting things um, when, you know, in recent years, as autism has now had its own classification, they're saying, oh, they're all coming out of the woodwork. Well, no, they, they, they have been hidden from view. The other thing is that I think 30 years ago, people didn't understand what is often called high-functioning autism. Mm. And I think that's that term is often really badly used because... It kind of says, you know, this person is a genius that doesn't need support. And really the high-functioning person with autism is only high-functioning relative to, you know, other people with, with autism. So what you're actually seeing is the profile of autism that wasn't there before. And, of course, funding bodies can get the jitters because they're saying, oh, we didn't know it was there. Well, you know, they are there. Open your and eyes. I, and... One of the reasons why, I mean, we do autism diagnosis both for children and um, for, for youth because we there's a lot of 13-year-olds we're finding that have actually fallen through the crack. They, you know, might have been thought of as the little professor for a while. And then, you know, by the time they get to 10, 11, their ability to be able to fit in socially, 
um, they withdraw from school, they can't access the things other people that are accessing that are, you know, who are developing uh, socially. So I think good diagnostic standards are really important. And I think Western Australia has very good. And I know I'm just plugging Western Australia again, but Western Australia does have very good um, standards and very good accepted standards in, ti- uh, in diagnosis compared with other states in Australia. But you know, I'm always worried about the issue of oh, it's becoming a you know, it's becoming overblown. I think you know, you need you it's need a very to simplistic and, yeah, and ignorant it is. perspective, it is. isn't it? It's, it's it sure is. Uh, Joan McKenna Kerr is our special guest on Inspiring Stories. Let's take a quick break and back m- with more just after that. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Tim McMillan is my name. My special guest is the CEO of the Autism Association of Western Australia, Joan McKenna-Kerr. Joan, one of the, the many hats you've worn over the years is in an advisory capacity mm. uh, to the NDIS, which mm. was this massive initiative set up to mm. to provide real structure and support to the disability community, not just the autis- autistic mm. community, but disability mm-hmm. community right around mm-hmm. the country. Um, <laughs> we could be here for another hour mm-hmm. dissecting this, but mm. how do you reckon we're going with it? Look, I mean, there's a couple of things. When, when, we, when the, the whole concept of NDIS of basically having support when you need it and how you need it is a fantastic concept. And I remember when NDIS came in, I was passing one of our early intervention um, centres one day and I felt so good that those families of those young babies, those young toddlers coming in, wouldn't have to go through what so many families had had to go through. You know, we often talked about victims lottery and having to wait for services and all of those kinds of things. Um, I do think that we're at a juncture with NDIS and we do have to make sure that there isn't mission drift and that it continues to have the person with a disability at the centre of all decision-making. I think that um, certainly we need to make sure that it delivers what needs to be done. I don't think the work is over to shape NDIS into what it needs to be shaped, mm. but it does need to be shaped. And all all systems that support people with disabilities need to be accessible to them. You need to be able to say, that person is responsible, that person is accountable, and um, I need to be able to affect mm. change to that person. So I don't think we're there yet. I think no. there's a lot of work that actually needs to be done. And if I can speak again from my personal experience, um, there are changes on the way um, that frankly frighten the hell out of me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, autism is one of those areas that can be complex where, mm-hmm. um, you know, an, an autistic person might need services from a variety of different mm-hmm. areas, whether it's uh, an occupational therapist, mm-hmm. a physio, a speech mm-hmm. therapist, a psychologist, mm-hmm. whoever. And, and now there seems to be this push towards having these uh, individualized assessment for NDIS mm-hmm. that more or less then ignores and disregards all those little specialty fields that contribute to a, a complex but thorough program um, and, and you need treatment to, for, your, yeah. for your autistic child. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm staggered and, and disappointed to hear that that's on the cards. Look, 
you, you, need, you need autism expertise to be able to evaluate someone with autism, mm. and that really is... Not, not just a pen pusher who doesn't m- understand the multidisciplinary. complex needs. Yeah. But even in terms of, you know, it's supposed to be you know, looking at the assessment of functional need. So, for example, I can assess someone with autism and I can say, young adult, can, can you cook? And that person says, yes, I can microwave a meal. Um, can you shop? Yes, I can shop from a list. So, okay, that, that, that person can take care of themselves. However, if you have autism knowledge, you actually know that basically one of the issues with autism cognitively is that they often don't integrate information. And so while that person may technically be able to answer, I can shop, um, and, and this is an, exa- an example of a young man we have, or and I can microwave him, he can't make the connection between the food going down in the cupboard and the need to shop. Mm. So... If you're an independent assessment and don't know, if, you, if you're an independent assessor and don't know the questions to ask, you think the person is capable. But if you're an auto, if, if you understand autism, you'll know that there's questions you need to ask. So I think that's the reason why people are worried at the moment. Yeah. The intent of NDIS is a really good one, yeah. but we actually have to make sure that people with disabilities and their families are the driving force that shape it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that uh, that's a massive issue. Hopefully, that um, gets rectified. Uh, mm. before, uh, you know, large-scale mm. damage is done. Let's talk about uh, things that are on the immediate horizon mm-hmm. um, for the autistic community mm-hmm. here in mm-hmm. Western Australia. World Autism Awareness Day mm-hmm. has, has just been and gone, but it, as I said, it's not just one day. What else is happening at the moment? So in terms of projects, there's a lot of things happening in, in Autism Month. There are issues for teachers. There, there, are, there are events for teachers. There are, There's events for families. There are events for people with autism and if you go onto autism.org.a, you'll, you, you, you'll have that information. The other two big projects that we will release this year, we've just done a fabulous project with the police. And I want the commissioner to release the, you know, because it's a training, some training videos for police. And I, I hope the commissioner will, uh, we're going to ask him if he can, it would release the videos because all of the police officers who participated and talked about autism and talked about supporting people in, in difficult, they're all parents of sons and daughters with autism. It is fabulous. Uh, one of the best videos I've seen on what is autism for, for, for adults, and we've produced it, and the police are wonderful, and I want to see that ha- happening. The other thing is we've done work with, um, the health, uh, with, with, with health practitioners around making it easier for people who, have, who are inpatients in hospital, who visits their GP, have to understand autism. And we've also done work with the... Um, the uh, Dentistry Association of Western Australia. Those things will be launched this year, so look out for them and we'll put information on our website. And just finally, Joan, on a personal level, mm-hmm. um, when is your mission, if you like, complete? Y- your son's now in his in his 30s. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at some point you're going to have to <laughs> hand over the reins. Is there still some final goal on your horizon? Look, history marches on. And um, the thing is that the next generation of uh, families, the next generation of people will set goals. Our goals, the goal for me and the goal for the people who work with me and the goal for the Autism Association, what we want to achieve for people with autism is an ordinary life. And I often say that we're an organization of self-flagellators. We're, <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're basically always saying to ourselves, OK, how, are we do, how will we do this better? How do we achieve the ordinary life? Our mission is not to deliver services, which we do. Our mission is to change lives. So we change lives by making how we deliver services more like the rest, 
creating situations in which people with autism have more and more ordinary lives and more and more ordinary opportunities. And that's history and history marches on. So mm. we've got great people in, in the Autism Association who continue that vision. Yep. And uh, there's still some work to go, but... There is. They so are I'm not, on, hang- they are so I'm not hanging job. up my guns No, yet. no, no. wasn't <laughs> suggesting anything. <laughs> not trying to phase you out early, Joe. I promise you. Uh, we do appreciate you taking yeah. some time out there to come in and share your story. So thank you very much. It's been lovely. Thank you. You've been listening to Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. We look forward to you joining us again next time as we unearth another inspiring story. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semi finals, all thanks to McDonald's. Mackers, together and loving it. TNCs apply.